This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Come for Balloon Fiesta. Yeah, sure. When's that? Uh, it's October every year. Oh, all right. Uh, there's no f-ing way I'm going in a balloon. Oh, <laughs> I'll fly you. I'll be, I'll be the pilot. Won't oh, that make you feel better? God, I'm so deathly afraid of heights. <laughs> I used to be. And then I started flying in hot air balloons. Oh, I'm just getting scared thinking about it. Right. My palms are sweating. It's not good. <laughs> so the client I'm on gave me a uh, shiny new laptop to use, which is on one hand like, ugh, I already have my laptop set up and now I have to use a laptop owned by them. It's for like security and compliance reasons, which I understand, but it was more like, oh, I've got to go through this whole process again. But it's also a brand new computer, which my ThoughtBot laptop is not. So that's been exciting. This put some of your recent tweets into context. Yes. So I took the I took the time to be like, okay, well, ThoughtBot has the, like the laptop script, which is like get a Ruby on Rails slash JavaScript slash whatever development machine up and running with like homebrew and the formulas you probably need and like a version manager and things like that. And so like I ran that and then it came time to like get the client app running again. And I remembered how much of a pain it was to get it up and running. So I spent some time like writing scripts to script the install and make it so that future developers could just like clone this meta repo, run bin setup and end up with like the various repos they need all with all the dependencies installed, like the, like the homebrew dependencies. Cause like it's nice sometimes when you're in an environment where everybody's on a Mac and you just be like, here, it just, it runs, it has a brew file. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's nice. And I did all that. And it struck me just how many times like when I go on to client projects and there is no form of automated setup, because what, what happens is like the new person shows up and they're like, okay, how do I get this thing running? And there's some documentation that's always out of date and incomplete. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're thinking like, man, this is really hard. Once I figure out what's really happening here, <laughs> I'm going to solve this problem. <laughs> But then, like, they have a working environment and they forget what the problems were or, you know, it didn't seem that hard to them. Or they're just like, I'm never going to touch this thing again because it's working. Well, and they have to ship stuff. Right. And they've got to ship stuff, right? And then, uh, you know, two months later, they hire somebody else. And this poor person that they hired has to go through the same process again. And then, like, a year later, the person with the most knowledge about the entire system quits. And the next person starts and everybody's like, oh, I don't know. I just asked ask that other person my questions. and Now they're not here. What do we do? So I think one of the things I see is that organizations continually discount the value of like a repeatable setup process and like how valuable it is to be able to go from zero to a PR within a day on a project. Yeah. You know, and there's there's this whole DevOps movement, which supposedly is supposed to be centered around at least some of this, although it tends to focus more, in my experience, tends to focus more on like automating deployment and things, which is different than automating development. But I'm pretty sure these days it mostly just focuses on we don't have to hire ops people because our developers do DevOps. <laughs> actually, these days what I hear is we're hiring a DevOps person. Or that. Which is actually, it was actually a tweet. I, it was on my mind and it was a tweet I just saw from Justin Searles. It was like, if you're hiring a DevOps person, you're just hiring an ops person. <laughs> like, <laughs> they do ops. That's their job. Uh, it's not developers doing ops. But yeah, you're, you're right. And so I, I just, I, the number of times that I have to create an automated setup script and then 
people either, you know, it goes one of two ways. Either people immediately see the value of it or people just like, what what's going on here? And then nobody else maintains it other than me. And then I leave and it probably gets unmaintained but right i was gonna i was gonna say you, you run the same risk as with the documentation getting out of date of just the script getting out of date right and that's why one of the things i try to do and i didn't do it on this project because i just haven't had the time but one of the things i try to do is get ci running the yep. setup script because yep. then you know confidently that on day one the person should be able to just sit down and get going and it's not only on day one right it's when you get a new laptop or when for whatever reason your environment gets hosed or anything like that and docker a lot of people will point to docker as a solution to this but like that's fine great if docker is what this thing's ultimately going to run in but still give me a give me a script to run that like installs it and sets everything up and all that stuff it make it as easy as possible and make it so that preferably and if you want to if you want to take your concerns to the next level preferably so that like when the person who is running linux joins the company like <laughs> things are composed in such a way that it's not a disaster for that person to like customize the script for linux or if you're running it on ci you're probably running it on linux anyway but i'm i'm pretty sure the people who were saying docker is the answer will 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 argue that docker is the answer for the person who uses linux joining the team as well <laughs> last i checked docker does run on linux yes yeah even better so yeah I, i'm with you though I, I hate having to use a container for development environments yeah i tried to get out it was funny the pr i submitted was like somebody was like but uh you know i have this docker environment and i was like I was frustrated enough to say like something some like it's more work and it's slower and you get an inferior environment in the end. <laughs> and I was like yeah. I had to walk that back a little bit. I was like I didn't mean to say that it was somehow inferior but like it's just it my experience have been more frustrating than running the project locally every single time. I'm sure that there exist projects that are large enough and have dependencies onerous, onerous enough that like it really is worth running through Docker but like when I have to run a bash prompt inside my Docker container and then run, you know, and then do my debugging from there, like that's the kind of thing that I'm just like, oh, this is an extra step that I don't want to be doing or wait for Docker to spin up to run tests or something like that. Yeah. And there's probably people who are way better at Docker than I am. They're like, why are you doing that? There's this other, there's this other solution. That's definitely the voice they have, obviously. <laughs> that's the voice of somebody who disagrees with me at all the time, all times in my head. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, spend some time and, and like, it's one of those things that as a consultant, I feel like I get a little more free reign to explore. <laughs> it's like, well, I know I had to set this up. And so I'm not, I mean, the first time around, I knew nothing about how this, it was complex enough that I was like, I can't from day one, write a bin setup script because I don't know anything. But then when they gave me this new laptop a month into the project, I was like, oh, I know enough to take this opportunity to be like, no, I'm going to script this and then nobody else is going to have to do this again, hopefully. So trying to carve that time out, I recognize is hard to do. But as we've talked yeah. about on the show before, sometimes you just have to be like, I'm the professional and uh, this is my professional opinion that I'm going to <laughs> more opinions. Great. This is my, this is my <laughs> professional, my professional judgment tells us that uh, this is the best thing to be doing right now. And so I'm going to do it. And ultimately it cost me probably, probably like four more hours than if I had just run the string of commands, if I had like discovered and run the string of commands manually and then just done it once rather than being like okay now let me undo that and write it in my script and try it in my script okay it's working not like that was the dance i had to go through as i was scripting the thing but yeah so that's my that's the end of my plug for repeatable setup scripts in all of your environments now uh everybody take friday at their jobs and make sure this gets done thank you <laughs> this episode brought to you by repeatable setup scripts <laughs> <laughs> yeah do you want to talk about vcr Sure. 
so some people may have seen us going back and forth a little bit on the Twitters about this. So I've been wrapping up the... It's actually wrapped up. There's a few open pull requests left, but it's been wrapped up for a while. The uh, port of crates.io over to use diesel. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember why I, I decided to go look at this, but there was just this one query that I decided to go optimize. Mm-hmm. And it had the side effect of changing the order of the returned rows. But this is a query where the order of the returned rows does not matter. Mm-hmm. But what's happening is elsewhere in the application, something is looping over these rows and then making an HTTP request for each row. So then I started digging into this thing that I've been fairly certain was just like broken and difficult to touch, but started to get a feeling for just how broken it was in this application. Our bespoke homegrown version of what is effectively VCR. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the same as VCR because very specifically it cares about the order that the HTTP requests are executed in. And there's a comment in it that says to do verify request body because it does not store the request body at all. Um, But what's interesting is just how much bit rot there is in this code. So this is, I'm I'm, going to transition from this into my problems with VCR, the Ruby gem. (laughs) And it won't get quite this bad for people using misusing VCR and Ruby. But when you're also writing like VCR yourself. So first of all, like this is th- this was all of the API requests that it was making to GitHub specifically were idempotent. They were they were just get requests. So there's absolutely no reason that they couldn't be repeated, uh, other than th- that the username and the organization name that it was uh, querying against were hard coded into the application, not something that you could supply yourself. And you know there were some credentials that were basically there was there's an OAuth token in the actual requests that has ex- since expired. And then there's some code where if you have an environment variable with the actual password, it'll go renew, refresh the OAuth token. That code is just completely broken. <laughs> like, it does not work at all. Mm-hmm. The uh, code that actually records the request, basically the way that, that it works is, I don't, I'm not sure how WebMock actually works under the hood. I'm assuming it's just stubbing out methods in NetHttp, but maybe not. The way this one works is it just uh, spins up a HTTP server on localhost and then sets up a app-wide proxy so that all requests get proxied to this port on localhost instead. And then basically it just listens for the request, downloads it, writes it to a file, and then replays it to the... Ac- uh, check, well, checks to see if the file exists. If the file does exist, validate that everything except the request body matches. And if the file doesn't exist, record it mm-hmm. uh, and then replay it. Except the uh, code that was recording this as of about three years ago called read to end on the socket. And so read to end uh, literally just reads from some arbitrary data stream until it reaches an end of file character or the stream itself is closed uh, or, or until you read and it returns zero bytes read, which if you're talking about an HTTP socket or a TCP socket is never going to happen until the client closes it. But it should never get closed because the client's just waiting for the response. We haven't sent the response yet. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought that this was only broken for the GitHub stuff and that uh, it was fine for recording new requests. Because I've seen people add new fixtures for the S3 uh, requests in our tests. At first, I thought those were working fine because I realized after looking through the code, none of our code that hits S3 ever actually checks the response from the server. It sends the request and immediately closes the socket. Mm -hmm. Uh, However... No, that code for recording that is also completely broken. It just blocks forever. Uh, <laughs> and everybody who's added an S3 request in the last three years has been ma- has been copy-pasting files from other recorded requests and editing them by hand, which only works because we're not recording the request bodies. Right. 
Uh, anyway, all this to say, um, so idempotent get requests to GitHub are something that we should have structured so that the tests just pass without without this VCR thing. S3 is an API which you can reset between tests very, very easily. If you want your starting state to be something other than an empty bucket, it's a little harder. But assuming that your starting state is an empty bucket, which for most testing things, that's going to be the case, hmm. your test should just pass without this VCR thing. And by that, you mean you should be able to hit the external services in your tests without a... Is that what you mean? Yes. So, so like without causing too much... Like, it's not like, for example you're charging a credit card. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I don't think VCR is the right tool for the job for things like charging credit cards because okay. there you're not making an API request and then, you know, expecting to interact with the API in a certain way. It's very specifically sending this HTTP request is the side effect you want to test for. Right. So why don't you think VCR is a good fit for that? Well, because VCR doesn't explicitly say anything. VCR, oh, right. VCR is completely invisible to your test. VCR just says record all this and replay them again later. Right. It doesn't validate any outgoing request, right? Doesn't it? Doesn't validate that the requests that were recorded were still sent. Even even if it did, even if it was the way that the the crates.io one works is that they have to exactly the same requests have to be sent in exactly the same order. Mm -hmm. But even even if VCR were doing that, if your test is testing that a specific HTTP request is sent, I would like to see your test state. I am testing that this specific HTTP request is being sent. Right. Otherwise, you've got the uh, what 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 the hell's the name of that smell? From uh, you know the one I'm talking about, where where just your it's like spooky action in a distance, but that's not the actual name of it. It's what smelly like socks. Spooky what? <laughs> like spooky action at a distance, but that's not the actual name of it. When you're when when the thing that you're testing is outside of your actual test. Oh, I don't know. Mystery guest. Mystery guest. Yeah, you've just in, you're just introducing a bunch of mystery guests into your tests. Yeah, any global fixture like that could be a mystery guest, depending on the context in which it's, which it's used. And so in my mind, there are three types of APIs that you want to interact with and test. Mm -hmm. The first are the, are the APIs that either you can just reset between test runs or where all of your requests are idempotent or where you can specifically interact with it in a way that you make it semi-static. So like, for example, uh, if you were interacting with Bing, mm -hmm. um, an example might be rather than testing like, when I search for this thing, I should get this many results back. Mm-hmm. Instead saying, like, when I search for Microsoft, I should get more results than if I search for BOS. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So that's the first class. And for those, VCR is a great tool. With the caveat of, I think if you're using VCR, you should add your cassettes to GitIgnore, and you should set them to expire on a weekly basis. So in that setup, if you put them in GitIgnore, somebody who freshly clones the project and runs the test will be actually hitting the server, which means they have to have credentials to hit whatever server they're Correct. hitting. And they also gives you like a real world like sanity check that like, yep, when we make actual requests, this thing passes. Yep. And the ref the refresh every week means that like in that process is going to be repeated weekly and you're going to have to get new cassettes every week. Yes. But it also means that CI is hitting the server. Um, Not necessarily. You can set up CI to separately cache the cassettes directory. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. I do agree that like and now every new developer has to have these credentials just to run the tests. I think that's a valid concern. Hmm. Skip unless end whatever. <laughs> you know? Oh, God, I don't want to see those skips. Uh, that... No, but if, if that's a concern, if your concern is we have 20 different credentials and we don't want developers to need to have all of them to, to run any tests, like, that's, that's the solution. That reminds me of my tying it back to the uh, automated setup thing. So this, the client project I'm on now has a lot of environment variables that are keys to external services, which they integrate with. 
And basically the only way to get them is to like ask somebody for their copy of their .m file and they give it to you and it turns out like they have 90% of what you want, but they have incorrect credentials for the other 10% that they just never bother testing or whatever the case is. So in the setup script, what we end up doing is we rely on the fact that the user should have access to staging and we pull down a whitelisted list <laughs> of environment variables from uh, staging. So we're not pulling down something like database URL or whatever. So then we can't. That, that won't blow things up anymore. Though. <laughs> Luckily, true. we fix that one. <laughs> so I think that that's a uh, go back to your automated setup so that everybody can have those environment variables <laughs> when needed. Sure. Yeah. So in that scenario, you basically you need internet access and you need these environment variables every week. Basically. Sure, but like so, you know, if you're going on a plane, mm -hmm. comment out the line that that sets them to expire, right? Or right before you get on the plane, delete the cassettes and refresh, <laughs> right? And to me, the value of that is, and I'm sure this is what you're getting at too, is just like I can verify that like these tests still pass on fresh data. The API hasn't changed, the tests are still valid, things like that. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that's the important one, right? So in my particular case, almost all of the bit rot was in the code responsible for recording this, which is very unlikely to be the case in if you're using the RubyGem VCR. But uh, it's still very much the case that your test can get out of date. APIs do change, regardless, you know, whether we want them to or not. Yeah. And, and tests change. And your credentials go bad and whatever. And your credentials go bad, yeah. Right. So if it is something simple like your credentials go bad, and big whoop, if the API hasn't changed and your code all still actually runs, you run the risk of just now, nobody can easily, this is especially bad for open source projects, nobody can easily edit any code that would result in needing a new test that hits this endpoint or would change the request made by this endpoint because now you can't act, you can't re-record the cassettes. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, the second type of API that is the, is the kind of thing like you're charging a credit card where the side effect that you're testing for is this HTTP request was made, in which case I think the way to test that is you have WebMock and you're explicitly saying, expect this exact HTTP request to get made. Because mm -hmm. if that exact HTTP request is not getting made, your code is not working. Right. And that really should be very explicit in your test. Okay. And then the third kind is the really shitty kind, where you're not necessarily specifically testing for some request. You, like, the request being made is not the side effect that you want to test for, but is not an API that you can easily reset or make identity requests against. Like what? What's an example of this third kind? Uh, GitHub for any non-get requests. Stripe okay, for right, anything right. that isn't charging a credit card. Right. I, I'm sure I could come up with, if I, if I, if I spend enough time, I'm sure I come up with one where, there, where I can say this API is an example of this without a qualifier at the end. But <laughs> those are the two big ones uh, that I've personally encountered. Okay. And I've never come up with a great plan for testing those other than like start with WebMock. And if it gets too complex, set up a Sinatra app. I think I think WebMock is my least favorite of all of these options for whatever reason because I can never I think it's just because I can never remember like what I'm supposed to write to make the thing happen that I want to happen. <laughs> VCR is only marginally better because the VCR analogy gets tortured in that gem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you're like, what? Because okay, what do I do? Eject? Is that what I'm trying to? Like, <laughs> do I have to rewind? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but for things like Stripe, I like fakes, which are yes. equivalent to spinning up a Sinatra app, right? So yep. you can control them from the outside. So you, before you start your test, you say like, hey, test, pretend what I'm about to give you is an invalid credit card. And then respond like you would in the case where I give you an invalid credit card. And then you do the thing. 
and then you make sure your application responds properly to invalid credit cards and things like that. Yeah. I see a lot of people make like these, they're not really fakes. I guess what they are is just like a stub that responds with the same, it's it's like an in-memory thing that responds with the same response all the time with no no ability to control its, um, sure. it, which is a good start towards a fake, but then like ultimately if it's important to check like what's actually coming back in the response then you need the the ability to control it i mean i I would argue don't make it more complex than you need it to be to test how you're interacting with the api but i yeah i I agree with you that that it's very rare for your interaction with an api to be so simple that a identical response regardless of the request being sent is sufficient and the the other thing about all these things is I it's rare for me to see a project that has any significant amount of external integration that uses just one of these strategies. Right. <laughs> like I will see, you know, fakes in some areas of the code like we talked about, and then you will have um, VCR in the other. What gets really crazy is when there's no there's no rhyme or reason as to which integrations are using which way to stub out external requests so when there's no consistency um when you have like these in-memory objects that like like uh my current client project what they do often is they have um so there's like an aws adapter that makes actual requests and then in development they swap that out with something that's just like a static they call it in memory but it's just a class that responds with static data Mm-hmm. And they do that in a lot of places, but then they also have VCR and they also have WebMock. And there's no rhyme or reason as to which which is used where. And I bel- I think that's just a sign that nobody has a solution that's like widely loved by everybody. <laughs> because I think what yeah. happens is like people are like, let's try it this other way this time. And like, oh, this this doesn't work because of these reasons. Let's try it this way these times. And I almost long for the days when everybody was like, I'm going to use WebMock for everything or I'm going to use VCR for everything. And then at least that way it was consistent and you knew what the specific, like you knew where your gaps were if you knew how the tools worked anyway. Right. Well, I mean, I think I think you could you could rephrase my sort of like hierarchy that I just laid out as use VCR if you can. Mm-hmm. But if you're using VCR, you have to have your cassettes in GitIgnore and you have to have the cassettes that should expire. Mm-hmm. And so if that doesn't work, then switch to WebMock. And if the way you're using WebMock gets too painful, switch to like actually building a fake. Right. Okay, there we go. Sean has solved it. Thank God. <laughs> no, just people misuse VCR, and it causes problems. Right. I've definitely hand-edited VCR cassettes before to make you test pass. You shouldn't do that. You should never <laughs> do that. If you're having to do that, something is fundamentally wrong. Right, and so the the reason it comes up is like, I'm going to hand-edit these, these VCR cassettes because I don't have the ability to re-record them. Right, which is exactly what you were talking about with people checking in new S3 cassettes and that in the uh, cargo yep. or crates.io project. So that's often that I'm like, okay, it's usually just changing the value of something, but occasionally it's like, sure. I know this thing responds with this key and it's just not in the cassette. So here we go, I'm putting it in the cassette. <laughs> <laughs> like I've ran the request over here. I verified that, yep, that key's in the response. So I'm just going to go ahead and manually, it's basically manually re-recording the cassette somehow, that kind of thing. Or looked at the documentation and I see this, I see the. Uh, you know, I mean, if the docs say it does that, it mu- they must be correct. Docs don't lie. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? What do I think? Yeah, about the hierarchy. Well, I think there's an underlying thing, and that's never integrate with a third-party service. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. I mean, uh, that's a lie, but kind of a lie. <laughs> Make sure it's worth it to integrate with a third-party service, I guess is what I would say. And early on, the minute you start that integration, 
think about how you're going to test it. Yeah. And don't wait until you have, you're like, oh, we make S3 calls all over the place and we never verify that they work. Or like, we've been hitting the network for these S3 requests every time uh, and paying whatever in band. I mean, it would be hard to run tests often enough to really run up bandwidth charges, I guess. But No, but you can definitely hit rate limiting issues. Right. Right. Or whatever the case may be, like come up with your strategy early on. Like the, the time to come up with the first strategy anyway is when the first commit is added that integrates with that third party service. Yeah, absolutely. That goes back to like test driven development. Like how do you know this thing works? What test did you write to test that it works? Yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if every person who exposed an API that you're likely to want to integrate with also shipped a dummy version of that API oh, that you could run locally? So ThoughtBot has fake Stripe, which is a gem we use for Stripe fakes. <laughs> uh, very, if Stripe just gave that to us. Very cleverly named. Did they give it? Oh, if Stripe just gave it to us? Is that what you said? What if Stripe just had that? Well, uh, and, it was, and it wasn't a Ruby gem. It was an actual just server that you spun up locally. It's not a gem we publicize much because we just maintain it enough to fit our needs for the most part. Right. And it gets updated oh, when somebody has a need to update it. But we did reach out to them and we were like, hey, would you like to take this off our hands? And they said, no. <laughs> yeah, <So. laughs> sounds all right. Unfortunately. But yeah, I think that would be awesome. And if it were the right service and done the right way, I think it would impact adoption among the right community. If, if like the people who are going to adopt it are in the right, like Stripe is a good example. And the reason why Stripe, uh, one of the reasons why Stripe took off is because they were so developer friendly. But can you imagine, like, if you were a new Stripe coming up today, one of the things you could do is, like, make your testing story really awesome somehow. Yeah. And the difficulty in that is, like, at this point, you can no longer be like, well, we have Ruby bindings and we have these other bindings and that's right. it. Like, you got you to gotta cover that from all all angles. I mean, the other thing that would be nice more if more things did was just have like a sandbox mode where you hit an endpoint. It's like, all right, here's a token and that token is is a completely fresh user. Right. And even just like, here's a sandbox mode. Don't actually do anything. Or like start sandbox, start trans, like basically start transaction, right. do a bunch of things and transaction, roll it all back. That kind of thing would be pretty awesome too. But I have yet to find a service that really has anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know of, of many services that are actually completely transactional. Yeah. Anyway, cool. What else? I had a thing I was dealing with yesterday that you might find interesting about floats. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Floating, right, floating so point math. I actually want to get your opinion on what we should do here. Oh boy, I'm probably the wrong person to be asking this. Go ahead. Let me hang okay. on. Let me Google floating point arithmetic. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so. I've explained to you before, right, that we have the contract that dot save dot reload should not change the value of an attribute. In what? An active record. Okay. Dot save dot reload should not change the value of an attribute. Um, that can be your contract. It's not true, but, you know, sure. I mean, do you have concrete examples where it's not true these uh, days? Well, it involves an out-of-band request, but yes. You call save... Right after you call save, I manage to do something. You call reload. Okay, right. Assuming, assuming, <laughs> assuming no other requests. Actually, no. If you're in a transaction, dot save dot reload would never result in different data. If you were in a transaction, why would you be in a transaction? Okay, <laughs> because I because for this contract to work, we have to assume that the database hasn't been modified right. in between the right. call so, yeah. save and reload. So you are either in a transaction or nobody else is making a request. Yes. Yeah, nobody's affecting that row, gotcha. right? So assuming the assuming the row does not change between the call to save and reload, I'll stop being a jerk now. <laughs> okay. 
And that's why, so for example, if you assign a hash with symbol keys to a JSON column, mm-hmm. if you call the accessor, you'll get a hash with string keys back even before you call dot .save. Okay. And that's just a contract that we adhere to everywhere. Right. And so I discovered because I ha- because we have a test that I started to make fail, I started to cause to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you assign, for example, 789.012, or any float that is not accurately representable in a uh, 32-bit float mm-hmm. to a column or to an attribute which is backed by a 32-bit floating point column, mm-hmm. the number you'll get back after dot save dot reload will vary based on the adapter and your configuration. Yeah. Specifically, whether or not the underlying number is being transmitted as binary or text. So the place that you can observe this in Rails 5.1 is if you're using the MySQL 2 adapter, if you have prepared statements turned on, it'll get transmitted as binary. And if you have them turned off, it'll get transmitted as text. And so what that means, so uh, if you have 789.012, that's a number that cannot be accurately represented in a 32-bit float. Okay. So Ruby has no 32-bit floats. It is always whatever double is on your system, which is, I'm going to assume for everybody listening, a 64-bit float. Okay. So it'll be, if you convert in C or some other language that does have separate floats and doubles, if you have 789.012 as a 32-bit float and you convert that to a 64-bit float, which is what will happen when it's transmitted as binary, then you'll end up with 789.0120115, you know, long ass. That is what the number was, but now, it's, now that we have the additional uh, bits of precision, they can actually be displayed. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's transmitted as text, what's going to end up happening is we're going to parse the string 789.012 as a 64-bit float, which is now more precisely representing that number. Okay. So this test in Rails was only passing because we never we never run this test with prepared statements turned on in MySQL, which is, this is just one of those things of, of like, we should probably run our entire test suite with it turned on and off for every adapter. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, so I was looking at changing... Postgres start using binary transmission for more things. But when I change Postgres to use binary transmission for this, mm-hmm. this test now fails because the thing that is a backed by a 32-bit float column has a number that cannot be accurately represented in a 32-bit float. And so what's interesting, though, is save and reload will not change the value, but it will not accurately represent what is getting sent to the database or what is in the database. More, more So I, I set 789.012 or whatever, right? Yeah. And before I call save, I read it out, I get the same thing. Or do I get something different? I get the same thing at that point. Then I call save. Yeah. And I reload just for good measure. And I still get 789.012, but the database has something different. Right. Well, the database, hold on. Let me, let me tell you exactly what's going to have. So what the database will have is 789.012.0239.257813. Okay. Which is which is what that number is if you then just upcast that to 64 bits of precision. Okay. So specifically in Ruby, you are always dealing with a 64-bit float. There is no such thing as a 32-bit float in Ruby. Okay. So 789.012, the 64-bit representation is not the same thing as if you parse that string as a 32-bit float. Okay. Got it. Or more, or to put it another way, if you go from 64 bits and you downcast that down to 32 bits and then you upcast it back to 64 bits, which is what's happening right. during that during the transmission of the database, that's a lossy... Uh, right. You've gone from wave to MP3 back to wave. Right, yeah. 
So I'm starting to wonder if we should be downcasting to 32 bits explicitly when you assign it into active record if the backing column is 32 bits. What is the practical use case for this? For having a 32-bit For caring about that precision. Not having subtle bugs because your data is represented slightly differently what, on one side or the other. What data? Like, what, like what, who cares about this much precision? Uh, people doing anything with Science. Money. Science. Money. Science. Eh, money. You store money as integers. Yeah, you'd, you'd hope. But... <laughs> you should store money as integers. No, I mean, so so to be fair, right, this is part of why I'm iffy about this is because we don't have separate float and double types in active record today. We only have the float type. Mm -hmm. And I really don't think there's any good reason anybody should be using a float column in their database. They should always just be using double. Okay. So why don't you just, uh, you know, make a rail six change and be like, we no longer have float columns in databases. Yeah, that'll go over well. <laughs> No, I, I mean, that's that's one of the things, right? So then on the flip side of this is iffy because Ruby does not have a way to dis to distinguish between 32-bit and 64-bit floats, and we don't currently separate these types in ActiveRecord today. That's my why I'm iffy about it. On the flip side, I should just do it because, hey, if you're choosing a garbage data type for your backend, you get, you're going to get some garbage. Yeah, that seems fine to me. That's what I, that's kind of what I was getting at. Is like, that's, uh, that's on you. <laughs> If you care about that level of precision, then it's on you to figure out what you should be using on the back end and the front end or something. I was just quickly trying to search GitHub for t.float to see <laughs> how many apps have t.float, uh, but I can't get it. I don't know how to use the GitHub search. I can't accurately get it to search only Ruby projects. And it's finding me every every use of the word float and not t.float. <laughs> Why don't you understand my quotes? Anyway, if you do want to see though, specifically in Ruby, if you do want to convert a 64-bit float down to a 32-bit float, uh, you put it in an array and you call dot .packf. .unpackf. <laughs> that's the only way I've found in Ruby to. That's, that's just saying convert it to binary as a 32-bit float and yeah. then deserialize the binary as a 32-bit float. Why does it have to be in an array? <laughs> because pack is a method on array. Oh, okay. Interesting. And then you're gonna get back an array containing that one float. So you want to call dot .first on it. Okay. Which is what we'll do if we if we decide to do this in Rails. I don't know if I want to do this in Rails or not, but for right now, I've just changed this test to be like normalize these floats because they're backed by a 32-bit column. Mm -hmm. By do this in Rails, do you mean like have Rails address this at all, or that you would write a native extension to do this? Is that what no, I mean have Rails address this. Okay. So when you if your if your column is backed by a 32-bit float, when you assign to it, just like every other type, we will eagerly do the work to make that type if you try and read it back out, be how it's represented in the database. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting in this particular case, that might not otherwise be observable today. But because yet... if it's being transmitted as text, it's getting parsed as a 64-bit float, which is just it, it's just, it just means that you, are, you have a different value. Has anybody mentioned this yet as a bug, uh, other than you discovering it accidentally? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's been around for 10 years. I haven't read every bug report. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably some old bug that was like, eh, closed. We're not going to deal with this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess my... A, I don't really value the whole... The contract that you started with. <laughs> the idea... Yeah, I mean, this is mostly to uphold that contract. Right. More than specifically, oh, this matters because floats. I wish it weren't the contract. And that maybe... Like, I'm trying to think of, like, just from a broader level, what I wish happened. And I wish you could just have side effects in the database and you could get different... I mean, you can, right? So, like... If I were to write triggers in the database that did something, 
then when I did call reload, it would change, but that would be on me. There's no Rails code I can write to make that happen. Right, okay. How about this? Dot reload, dot reload. <laughs> okay, right, right. Um, should, not have, should not cause, you know, should not change uh, values. I guess actually that never would. Yeah, but. that never would. But I guess like, I don't know, maybe having some sort of like a warning or like a way to say like, I don't know, we already use save and save bang to say like, I don't expect, I don't expect any changes when I, if I, well, but we don't reload from the database anyway, so it doesn't matter. We only reload from the database when we explicitly say reload. We don't do, we don't if use you're saying I don't expect changes and you're dealing with a 32-bit float, <laughs> you're going to have a bad time. I don't know if you're aware of this. There are very few numbers that can be accurately represent that have identical representations as 32-bit and 64-bit floats. But that would highlight this issue, right? And then you'd be like, "How do I fix this issue?" And you'd be like, "Oh, you just use you just use a double, and you're fine." Or decimal. Yeah. So yeah, I think you can do whatever you want here. Whatever whatever makes you happy. <laughs> I just think it's interesting that the behavior of this changes based on the adapter. I, that that's right. the main reason I want this contract is because I don't like getting into Oh, and if you're using prepared statements, then right. the behavior is completely different, especially since whether or not a prepared statement is used is something that is meant to be an implementation detail and can change at any given time. Right. And that's that like not only the adapter changing, but whether prepared statements are enabled on that adapter. Right. But then it can also just be as simple as like whether or not we use a prepared statement for a given query. Right. Which we should at this point be using it for just about anything that's reasonable to, but it used to be only some queries use them. Right. And I think the idea of running, I hate the idea of running the tests multiple times, but like it already runs the test multiple times, but then, yep, got to do it again with prepared statements on or off. I mean, that's the only way to hit those, to actually hit every code path. Yep. Well, ha we have conditionals of if prepared statements are enabled. Right. And so right now they're completely untested for the most part. Yeah. MySQL, the test run with prepared statements turned off. Everything else runs with them turned on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is there a reason why they run with them off in MySQL? They're off by default in MySQL, ah, okay. uh, which I don't think there's any good reason to at this point. It used to be MySQL didn't support them. Right. Now it does. I don't think there's any reason to have them off by default anymore, uh, other than because we get test coverage of things like that aren't adapter-specific that break with prepared statements turned off, which happened recently. As an example, with the... Um... You saying that prepared statements are meant to be an implementation detail, you could theoretically in Rails 5.2 or whatever just decide like, nope, we're going to change that default to on. And yep. I mean, Rails would do that anyway because it doesn't care about versions. But uh, <laughs> but like, it's not a public contract that you're not going to run with prepared statements. Right. I mean, I mean, it shouldn't have any visible change in behavior. Right. Right. And right now it does. So, yeah. Spe specifically for floats. Hopefully that's the only case. I'm sure it's not, but at, right now only for floats. That's the only one I'm aware of. Well, you ran the whole to find that. Did you run the whole test suite with the prepared statements on? Oh yeah. I, I so when I broke Rails with prepared statements turned off like two weeks ago because I it was like 5 p.m. and I didn't have time to fix it right then. Uh, the way I fixed master was I just turned prepared statements on by default for my SQL for like two days and the test suite ran fine. <laughs> okay. I'm actually curious how this one. I think this one test might have been a Postgres specific test. All right. Well, good luck with whatever you decide to do. I look forward to all the tweets we get about how much people are using floating point numbers and this matters. Uh, and I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, I would be interested to hear, are you using floats? And have you ever been bitten by the fact that uh, you're getting back 64-bit float, which might not actually reflect what you have in the database because what you're storing in the database is a 32-bit float. Right. Or 
Alternatively, are you just never using 32-bit floats? Because you know not to use 32-bit floats when you have 64-bit floats as an option. I mean, so like looking at this again, going back to floats being awful, Ruby and a point release changed the way that they get rounded. No, they didn't. No, we stopped that. Oh. They were going to. We shot that down. Oh, okay. <laughs> we being Rails? <laughs> y- y- the entire Rails team jumped all over that and convinced them to... So it didn't to, happen? Uh, no, it didn't happen. That was supposed to happen in 2.4, right? Yeah. It was going to go to bankers rounding or something? Exactly. Huh. Wait, are you sure? 2.4 released faster hashes, unified integers, and better rounding. They gave the option to have different rounding. Ah. Uh. But the default didn't change. Okay, but it was going to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, here I am thinking that it did change. And it didn't impact me because I don't ever use floats. <laughs> Just store it as a string. It's fine. All right. Anyway, we should wrap up. Sure. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 122. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode you've heard, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Adios.